Um, we're going to hear from God's word now, um, but before Jane brings us the first reading, how about I pray? Father God, we thank you that uh, we have access to your word, the Bible, so freely that we can um, have our own copies, that we can look at it without fear of um, getting in trouble with authorities. We thank you, Lord, that uh, your word is your authority. It's how you speak to us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to listen to you now um, as we read from it and as Mark uh, opens it up to us so that we might understand you better. Amen. Our first reading is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 to 10, and that's found on page 450. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Honour the Lord with, with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. The uh, second reading today is uh, from Luke chapter 18. We're on page 742 and we're starting at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. <clears throat> For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. The little children and Jesus. People were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God, like a little child, will never enter it. The rich ruler. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honour your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad, because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel 
to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. If you uh, knee-jerk reaction and uh, close your Bible from where you were in Luke, let me encourage you to reopen it. Uh, it's a great spot to be. If you're, if you're new visiting amongst us, it's uh, great that you've uh, been able to come and join us today. Uh, we've been working our way through a journey that Jesus made. Uh, he intentionally headed down to Jerusalem knowing uh, the rejection that awaited him uh, because of his love for us and his desire to save us. Uh, and it's a journey he actually calls other people to follow him on. And so uh, we need to ask for God's help that we might have uh, the desire and the courage to follow after him. Let's pray. Lord and Father, we thank you for your word that you've preserved through the ages and your word that you uh, even now speak by your spirit into our hearts and minds. Uh, Father, we ask that now as we look again on Jesus, on how he acted, on what he said, uh, that we would be impacted by him, comforted and challenged by his words and all the more that we would want to follow after him and be like him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it was another week in Australia, so therefore it was another leadership spill. Uh, Even if you're only a a vaguely politically aware person, you would have heard our new Premier, Christina Keneally, uh, respond to those accusations that her role was anything less than independently earned. Famously, she said, I am nobody's puppet. I'm nobody's protege. I'm nobody's girl. Uh, It sounded so much better with her Ohio accent, didn't it? Uh, What what she was calling out amongst the kind of scoffing opposition bench taps into something that's deep in us. We like to think of ourselves as self-made. You would rather be known as a dependable person rather than a dependent person. Dependency just seems so unappealing, doesn't it? You know, you hear the word and automatically in your mind you're linked to, you know, positions of weakness, you know, those with addictions or on major medication or financial insecurity. And yet Jesus says only the dependent have a place in his kingdom. Only the dependent have a place in his kingdom. His kingdom is not made is not for the self-made woman. It is not for the self-made man. 18 verse 14. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, again, skipping down verse 17. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of, ch- of God like a little child will never enter it. And again, verse 22. You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have. Give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow after me. The real issue for us this morning is, is not whether we're dependent. Uh, as we'll see, the incidents of Luke 8 and show up, we're all dependent in, in some way. Even self-reliance can be a form of dependence. The real issue is not whether you're dependent, but where is your dependence? Where is your trust? This morning, I, I hope that we all leave here clearer on where our trust is, clearer on our place in heaven, 
more assured, more comforted, and perhaps more challenged. Uh, first, we need to do it by giving ourselves an honest self-assessment, by comparing ourselves against God. Uh, in 18.8, just before where we read, where we looked at, uh, where we finished last week, uh, Jesus posed a question that when he came in his kingdom to bring true justice, would he find a faith on earth? Will he find any ready for him to come? Uh, I read that passage with a friend, from, from not from this congregation, last week, who, who felt, from, felt the weight of that question. He worried that he may not have done all of God's will by then. Uh, he hoped he'd be ready, but he wasn't certain. Uh, and his reaction as we were reading it together was actually really beautiful because it anticipated where Luke was going to take us next. Uh, the relief, that assurance, is not connected to merit. At least not my merit. But not all are like my friend who felt the weight of that question. There are some who feel automatically assured and shouldn't. So in verse 9, Jesus tells a story to produce some honest self-assessment by getting people to compare against God. Verse 9, to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Uh, The parable, we just read it, it's very simple. Uh, Those who honestly compare against God rather than comparing themselves against other people are justified. So two men go to pray. Pharisee, he is a really good man. He does do loving actions. Uh, We've no reason to doubt the claims he makes in verse 12 of of what he gives away. And What he lacks, though, is the love behind the actions. So it's right for us to say love is more than a feeling. But love is not without feeling. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul points out that it is possible you could give everything that you have to the poor and do that even without love. And if you do that without love, that heartless action renders the loving action as nothing. Nothing, says Paul, nothing. And that's our Pharisee's problem. In verse 11, he stands to pray. Um, it talks about himself. It could go either way. It's either he's standing by himself, that is, he's, he's standing aloof uh, from you know, the others around there. Or alternatively, he's, he's praying you know, to himself, about himself, that, that it's a self-congratulatory prayer. He prays to God like a patient who, uh, who visits the doctor only to explain to the GP you know, really how healthy he is and what a prime specimen he is of physical fitness. In contrast, the tax collector, he stands off at a distance, if you notice his stance, and he won't even look up because he's got shame, not pride, and he cries a simple prayer, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The punch of his story is there in verse 14. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Why is the tax collector right before God? Because he made the right comparison. The Pharisee was a good man compared to other men and other women. And his confidence was entirely on just how he compared to the standards around him. But the tax collector compared himself to God alone. In fact, um, his prayer, a little more accurately, is, God have mercy on me, the sinner. Not a sinner, the sinner. He isn't just one of many sinners. He sees himself standing alone, stripped bare before the almighty and perfect God, and he is the sinner. As a culture, we've we've moved from, from virtues to values over time. 
uh, a shift from, from the absolute to the relative. So virtues like love and honesty and generosity have opposites that are wrong. They're called vices, you know, vices like indifference and lying and greed. But values don't have a flip side in the same way. You know, you value teamwork, I value individual achievement. Isn't it great we have our values? All equally valid. And that kind of thinking can even slide into our confidence before God. We can be tempted to leave out the the absolute virtue. Have I been completely generous? Instead, we compare on that kind of nice sliding scale of values that, well, my dealing with the clients wasn't quite as deceptive as the guy in the cubicle next to me. And so we feel okay. Why is it that 80% of Australian men think that they are above average at sport? Do the maths. Why? Because they, they hear the question and they think about the only sport they're good at and they think, yeah, I'm a bit above average. And they ignore all those other ones like you know, ice hockey and the luge. Uh, yeah, they invent a scale to suit them. Why do most Australians think they have a place in heaven? Because like the Pharisee, they compare on their scale against others. But against the absolute standard of God, whose eyes, we're told, are too pure to look on evil. The myth of self-righteous confidence needs to be destroyed. There is only one appropriate prayer. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. And that kind of honest self-assessment, comparing yourself against the perfection of God, uh, yes, it's humbling, at points painful, but it actually has some really obvious benefits. Yeah, one, it frees you from that cycle of, of pride and envy. It's really easy to be like this Pharisee. It's really easy to measure your performance at work against others as though they're competitors rather than colleagues. Uh, you know, it's easy to, to watch your kids being you know, better behaved or more gifted or more expressive and more free-spirited, whatever it is that you particularly value, um, and they're better than the others. Uh, and it's tempting as well because, to be honest, people who come to church are good people. And these horizontal measurements either feed uh, that, that kind of arrogance of pride at one end or, or the frustration of envy at the other end. But comparing yourself against God alone frees you from that. Uh, one commentator said of this passage, corporate prayer, when we come and pray together like they were, corporate prayer at its best provides moments of openness before God, not cover-ups, and it leads to healing. Yeah, escaping that cycle of comparisons is profoundly healing. Yeah, why not next time you're tempted to compare and envy someone, give thanks for them. Or next time you feel like proudly pitying them, pray for a clearer insight into the perfection of God to humble you. For the greatest benefit isn't just that, that freedom from the cycle of, of pride or envy. The greatest benefit is that the openness and the healing, the true healing that comes, is that you can stand right before God. That's what it is to be justified. To, to admit your moral frailty actually leaves you right with him. Covering it up never does. We never move away from the Pharisee's prayer uh, or to the equally silly, oh God, I thank you that I pray like the tax collector rather than that Pharisee. You know, again, that would be the absurdity, wouldn't it? The kingdom of heaven is not for those who depend on their own righteousness or or puff themselves up or hide their frailties and weaknesses. It's for those who are justified by depending on his mercy alone. 
And that point is kind of driven home in the following verses, the, the, the next story, that we should be people who rejoice in how God welcomes non-contributors. Have a look at verse 15. Uh, people were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. And when the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So after speaking of people who, who uh, I suppose, God justifies because they've given up on their self-reliance, Jesus is then swamped with you know, the babies. It's kind of like, you know, it is the Wiggles concert, isn't it? You know, all these little kids being brought to him and somehow you know, getting close to a wiggle will, will help them. Uh, and, and the disciples, of course, as Naomi pointed out to us in the kids' talk, they realise he's far too important for that. You know, time wasters, babies and little kids, they're not going to appreciate the skill of his stories. You know, he crafts beautiful teaching and they're, not, they're just not going to get that. You know, what senior executive wastes his time, his valuable, precious, paid-per-hour time, with a cleaner down the bottom of the rung? That would be inefficient, wouldn't it? You know, what senior pastor would go out there and run the kids' ministry? But that's not Jesus' view. He welcomes them. And even more, he says that if you want to be a part of his kingdom, then you need to be just like them. Not, we need to get this clear, it's not about innocence. Psalm 51 talks about how we are are sinful from birth. In fact, sinful from the time of conception. And anyone who's even interacted with a child will realise that you don't need to teach them to be selfish or to instruct them to annoy their brother um, or encourage them to hit their sister. No, no, they need training to be generous and training to be kind because they're not innocent. Uh, It just takes a little while before they can express anything and as soon as they can, it's sin. And in the context of this chapter, uh, where, where people who claim their own merit and claim their innocence and their goodness, they're actually the ones who are excluded from the kingdom. Uh, Jesus welcomes the children not because they're innocent. He welcomes them because they are non-contributing dependents. And that's countercultural then, it's countercultural now. Um, even now, we, we welcome children as commodities. You know, another asset to round out the complete life. I've got the Volvo, I need 2.3 kids. You know, or, or we welcome them according to their cute factor, so we smile more at those kind of nice-looking babies. Or, or we exclude them from the events where they would detract, like you know, those wedding invites that go out where the request is made, please don't bring your children, and they happen. Cause they would. Or, or we postpone them, or we even prevent their very existence in our lives. But Jesus welcomes them unreservedly. They are valued, valuable to him as complete non-contributors, They are not going to pass the message on. Uh, They're not going to get more recruits. They don't care for other people. In fact, they sap the energy of any who come near them. They are demanding, and yet they are welcome as complete members of God's kingdom. The the creche and kids' church we have there are massive consumers. They eat the majority of food at morning tea. Uh, They aren't on the roster to, uh, to set up or to clean up. Uh, we have this huge and fantastic team of leaders who come from other congregations uh, to, to uh, serve us and, more importantly, serve by training and teaching the kids that we have out there. You know, they are non-contributing members, our children. And yet they are full members of our church. Not only that, they are full members of God's kingdom. 
It's the truth we affirm when we baptise our children, that if Jesus welcomes them, who are we to keep them as second class? For God's spirit is powerful. Not us, not our merit. And if we're going to be part of, if you are going to be part of God's kingdom, you need to come like a baby, like a little child. I don't mean kind of go back in age. You need to come on the same terms. You need to come entirely dependent. God is not assembling an all-star team. In 1 Corinthians, um, he, he actually chooses the weak to shame the strong. God is not calling you because he's impressed by your credentials or your potential or your talent. And if you think he is, you are, and you're relying on that as your entry point, uh, then the sad news for you is you've no part in his kingdom. Karl Barth, the uh, 20th century theologian, wrote... We dislike hearing that we are saved by grace alone. We don't really appreciate that God does not owe us anything, that we are bound to live from his goodness alone, that that we are left with nothing but the great humility of a child presented with many gifts. To put it bluntly, we do not like to believe. It's humiliating to recognise you are dependent. Cornelius cries out, cry you know we we want to yell out I, you know i'm nobody's puppet i'm nobody's protege i'm nobody's girl poor guy but we need to rejoice in the truth and we need to feel the relief of the truth the kingdom is not for the self-made righteous but it's for non-contributing dependence you know my, my friend who who worried that he may not fulfill god's will he can actually have the blessing of assurance because entry is all about the work of God's spirit and nothing to do with the contributions you make. Now, I am perpetually missing opportunities to do good. And perhaps you know that experience. You know, I, I wrestle with the scriptures all week and I think of a, a whole variety of good things that I should act on and then I see opportunities for good just sail past me and I fail to take them. And disappointing as that is, I still have a place in the kingdom because it's never been about me. It's been everything about Christ and his welcome. That's why this morning, finally, I want us to let go of our bad dependency habits. See, straight after Jesus' welcome of children, we meet a man who his misunderstanding and his layers of misunderstanding is given away in his opening line. In verse 18, he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's kind of wrong at so many levels, isn't he? You know, inheritances by their nature are, are gifts that you can't earn an inheritance. Um, and the kingdom we've just seen, like take that heading out that was inserted, the rich ruler was a heading inserted. It's helpful to kind of look things up quickly, but, but it kind of breaks the flow of the story. When you put the two verses together, you actually see Jesus just affirmed that you can only receive the kingdom as a gift and he comes and says, what do I have to do? To get the kingdom, what have I? What kind of kingdom am I going to get? Considering all I've done, you know, already we've worried for this man. Yes, he's lived a moral life. Uh, Jesus very carefully in verse twenty raises all the commandments to do with loving your neighbour. But it's really interesting; he skips all the commandments to do with directly loving God. It's a fairly edited list. And then Jesus goes in and he applies the verbal scalpel. Verse 22, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Yeah, he was a good man, a really good man. Just one problem destroyed him. Just one bad dependency. You know, Titanic was on you know, TV again last night. It only took one hole 
to bring the ship down. One thing. Now, for this man, it's his money. Uh, during the week, one uh, over, overpaid professional soccer player, uh, Mark Planus, came out and said what many people think, but few will articulate. He said, I'll say it loud and clear, I love money. It's not football above all. You kind of go, well, at least you're honest. You know, few people say it, but the love of money traps so many. Uh, when we looked a few weeks ago at Luke 16, we saw Jesus' advice about money, that, that money is to be used for the service of relationships, that, that we should spend our money to build and maintain friendships, that we should use our money so that we're not a burden, but rather we relieve the burden on others. Money is for relationships. But this man, forced into a corner, loved money more than he loved relating to Jesus. One bad dependency and all was lost. It only takes that one leak to sink a ship. It only takes that one idol to destroy a soul. Uh, reading reading a, a lot of books, commentaries on Luke uh, during the week, I, I came across again another book by a guy called Roy Clements. Uh, Roy was a leading British evangelical, uh, a pastor of a large Baptist church, popular, um, gifted preacher, uh, articulate, intelligent. Uh, he's got lots of uh, Christian books that are they're actually really helpful, though these days they're hard to get a hand on because uh, the sadness is he walked out on his family and his ministry to be with the man he loved. You know, one bad dependency destroyed an otherwise righteous man. And what's intriguing about this young man that Jesus met is that his spiritual weakness is actually his worldly strength. Verse 23, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So there's just one thing that cost this man, and it was actually his strength. Our greatest danger is not our weaknesses, but our strengths. Because the kingdom... Uh, ultimately, entry into the kingdom is possible because, as Jesus goes on and says, yeah, it's impossible, man, nothing's impossible with God. People can be saved, but they're saved coming dependent as a child on Christ alone. Our real danger is not our weaknesses, but our strengths, the things we would like to rely on, the things that show us as good and impressive and powerful and the things we like to depend on. You know, when I lived in Tregear, out near Mount Druitt, People there didn't walk away from God because their career was both so demanding, so rewarding, so enjoyable. They do here. F.F. Bruce helpfully talks about the need to foster a love for God to guard against this. He says one, the one effective antidote to worldliness is to have one's heart so filled with the Father's love that it's got no room for any love that's incompatible with it. And if, indeed, if it is indeed in the ever-living God we've placed our trust, if it is by his love that our lives are dominated, then, then his interests will be paramount with us. His kingdom into which he has called his people is the one unshakable order. It's really helpful. You know, invest heavily in promoting the love of God in your life. But, but what does that look like? In the context of this young man, let me give one suggestion. Make sure your strength is being used to maximum effect to further God's kingdom and further your knowledge and love of him. Channel your strength toward the love of God. We've all got different strengths. By that, we've got different passions and we've got different gifts. We've got different blessings. We've got different networks of friends and family. All these strengths that we have. 
So, so choose a small group of, of Christian friends. Ask them to keep you accountable about the way that you use your strengths. Ask them if they see that you're using your strengths in a way that demonstrates you really depend on Christ and love his kingdom or whether you're building your own. And be willing, when you ask those friends to do it, to give up things that you love and you treasure if it will cost you the joys of the kingdom, the blessing of the family. He promises at the very end that even giving up your earthly family, there's a Christian family to be around you, the blessing of, in the age to come, life eternal. Because as much as we hate to admit it, we are dependent, each one of us. But it's only the dependency on Christ alone that will see you as part of his kingdom. Who do you trust? Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. In a moment we're going to sing a song that expresses that, a song that expresses the provision God gives and has a refrain that I will trust in you alone. It's a song based on Psalm 23. I'm just going to put it up on the screen now. I'm going to pray and then there'll be a chance just for you to keep looking over that psalm before we sing. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you that we don't enter your kingdom because of our merit, but rather you have mercy on we sinners. Father, we come before you and acknowledge we are the sinner. And we thank you that we can have an assured place in your kingdom because we come as dependents, because we come not contributing a thing, but rather because you welcome us in our weakness and father we pray that you would guard us from using our strengths in such a way that they become sources of dependence but rather may we trust in you alone because your steadfast love is so good to us in jesus name amen